0: Jesus was okay with people believing that he is God. As the Pharisees, his enemies, accuse him in the second half of being or thinking that he's God. And so it just stirs up more persecution toward him as he accepts the pray, as he accepts praise and worship unto himself. And then later on they're saying, you know what? You think that you're God, and He doesn't dispute anything that they have to say. And it's important for us to know who Jesus is. Now, as we looked at last week in Ryan's explanation of chapter 10, I love what he brought out in that uh, chapter. He's talking about being a sheep, being sheep, and how we will follow after the good shepherd. And that his sheep will know his voice, right? And when we know his voice, we can follow after him. One of my favorite parts of last Sunday was the explanation of the lost sheep. Because we always think about Jesus going after the one, right? He leaves the 99 to go after the one. And quite often you think of the one as just one that got wounded and was missed, But quite honestly, what he had brought out of that is the one is often like the rebellious one that didn't follow after everybody else that took his own path, and that's why he ended up hurt in the first place and wounded. He's the one that wasn't paying attention to following after the shepherd, and he might have fallen into something and and broke its leg or whatever. You've seen the pictures of the one sheep that, that gets hurt that he leaves to go after. It's this idea that we don't have to be the one, that it's not necessarily a good thing to be the one. Like, we, we don't want to dismiss the 99, right, that did follow after the shepherd, that are doing okay. Like, that's really where you want to be in life, is it a part of that flock of the 99. But the truth is, we all wander off at times. It's not always easy-peasy just because you've accepted Christ into your life. It takes trust to continually and closely follow after the good shepherd everywhere he wants to take you. And I can promise you this, even when you might get to a place in life where you kind of think you're becoming a do-gooder, the shepherd takes you in a direction that you haven't been before. A direction that doesn't appear to be necessarily full of light. Maybe it's through the valley. Maybe it's Psalm 23, through the valley of the shadow of death. And the question is, will you trust him when all you can see is darkness ahead? Will you trust him when all you can see is darkness ahead. It's no coincidence that that's kind of the setup for what we see in John chapter 11 this morning. Here's a story that I have probably preached more times than any other story in the Bible, simply because it's out of this story that I draw my funeral message that I've given for almost 19 years, the story of Lazarus and the idea that Jesus brings through that story of of remembering the person and reflecting on your own life and learning to rest in God's promises. But today, I don't want to look at it from a funeral aspect. What we're going to look at it as is this is Jesus' life lesson to grow you, to get you to a place of having so faith, Everybody say so. John chapter 11, verse 1 says this Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, Behold, like pause and hold on to this moment. He whom you love is sick. He whom you love is sick. Point number one this morning is, so I'm loved. Now, here's a message that was sent to Jesus that, That here's somebody who's sick, and it's somebody that you love. And it isn't just anybody. What you have to know about Lazarus is it's possible that Jesus grew up knowing Lazarus. That where him and his family lived, they may have known each other from the time that Jesus was very young. It's possible they spent time together, told stories together, that they played together. This is somebody that he would have, have known in the depths of his heart and somebody that also chose to believe in him like most of his family. It would have been natural for the sisters of Lazarus to reach out to Jesus and ask him to come in their time of need. These are also a people that, that Jesus loved in the sense that beyond just knowing them, they were spiritual family. Martha, if you know the story, more than likely was a hard worker. Mary was a good listener. And their home was a great place to visit because it lay just outside of Jerusalem in the town called Bethany that Jesus could have stopped at to pause for a break and, and be refreshed when they were traveling back and forth. Now, here's what I want you to notice in the beginning of the story. They knew Jesus so well, and he knew them so well, that they didn't even specifically ask for Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. Maybe they didn't feel like they needed to, that it was enough to just simply tell Jesus what was going on in the situation, and automatically he would be aware, and because he loved them, he would just show up. And I'm sure that in some sense, because they knew that they were loved by Jesus, that they had a relationship with Jesus. Now, somebody hear me this morning. They knew they were loved. They know they have a relationship with Jesus. There was some expectation they had that Jesus would just appear. And even though it's not even something they asked for, he knows and that he would do what they wanted him to do. There was this sense inside of them they didn't even need to ask. There was an expectation inside of them that he's just going to do it. If he miraculously met the needs of so many others, which they know that he did, don't you think they would assume that he would miraculously meet their need also? However we must learn and accept that even though we know God loves us, it does not mean that we won't have to deal with common needs, hurts, offenses, or even sickness in life. Verse four, when Jesus heard that, He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This sickness is not unto death. Just a quick thought to ponder. Sometimes I like to think about these things. If you follow the story and how many days uh, Lazarus was dead when Jesus was told, you try and figure out the time span. It's quite likely that by the time Jesus was told that he was already dead or that he was very close to dying at any point in the story. So for Jesus to, to make that statement almost seems like a contradiction. That if Lazarus was already dead when he was told, or close to dying and he was aware of that, to say that almost seems contradictory because a lot of people view death as being the end. But I want to ask you this morning, can a person truly define death for those Jesus loves? Verse 5. Now Jesus loved... We see this again. Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse six. So everybody say so. He loved them so. Like, do you ever get somebody, get around somebody, and all they ever say is the word so? And and you it drives you crazy because they'll be like so. So, so, like, shut up. Is that all you can say is so, right? That's how you feel when when it's all they can answer. Like, and if you think about the idea of the word so, like, so could have two different meanings. So is the idea of a question. So, like, what's next? Right? But it also can be so, like, I don't give a, A care about what's being said. I don't, I don't care about what's going on. So what? Like it doesn't even matter to me. And as bad as that sounds, like there is this aspect of that type of personality when they say so that I've actually appreciated in people sometimes because I'm somebody who struggles with sometimes caring. I feel, no, listen, I know I'm a pastor. I don't give a rip. I'm challenged by the attitude that says, so. Like, I don't care, so. Now, it can be annoying, but it's not necessarily a bad thing because that person has enough confidence to not really care about what the question is if you were to have said so. So. Their response is so. Like you can question it, but the truth is, it doesn't even really matter what the answer is, what what the next step is. It doesn't matter to them. I'm asking so, and they're saying no, so like it doesn't even matter. And here's what I want us to understand. We're talking about so faith this morning, and the response. To Jesus, from Jesus to the situation of his good friend, close friend that he loved, being sick bad enough that the sisters would send somebody to him miles away to say, hey, this is what's going on. His, his response in verse 6, it says, So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place. Where he was. Jesus loved them. It just stressed that again. I feel like this idea that Jesus loved them is being reinforced here again because they started with it and then the writer adds it here again. The Apostle John wants this point driven into the hearer. Jesus loved them. This is foundational in our understanding of who God is. Is it any wonder that as I'm praying, God sends Pastor Art up here? Which we don't even, if you've never been here, that's not common. And Pastor Art's not a regular because he's pastoring in other places. For him, who's not a normal, regular, I mean, he's normal. He's <laughs> as normal as they come. A pastor, to feel like he has a word for the church family. And what was part of that word? To know that God loves you. Like that's, to me, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, no wonder. Because this, this, ver- this right here in my sermon is the key point to everything that I have to say today. That it is a foundational understanding to the whole point behind every verse that we're going to read moving forward. That Jesus loves you. You have to know that. You even look at the separate mention of the three persons, right? Because it just said that Jesus loved them. But it didn't. It said that Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved her sister, who it had just described as being Mary. That Jesus loved Lazarus. He didn't, he didn't lump them together in any sense he loved them each individually. I believe that he did this. The writer that the Lord inspired did it because he wanted to stress the point of Jesus' affection for each and every person individually. And in this story, if you understand who the people are, All three are very different people, very different personalities, with different attitudes and responses and motivations. And though their lives are intertwined as family, they all have different life stories according to God's word. But that's our God. Jesus is a personal God, and he loves each one of us no matter who we are and what personality we have and what our motivations might be individually. God loves you as much as he loves me. He loves you as much as he loves your spouse, as much as he loves your kid, as much as he loves your favorite preacher or speaker, or whoever it might be. He loves you for you. You have to hold on to that belief and be able to live from it in order to have a so faith. Now, It would have been one thing if we would have gotten to that verse six and it would have used the word, but Jesus stayed two more days. Because but would give you the idea that maybe there was something else going on in Jesus's life. Maybe he had other things that he was already doing. Maybe he didn't realize Lazarus was as sick as he was, that that it was going to be okay, that there was people that he was ministering to right here, right now, and that he was going to keep ministering to those people because that was the priority and those were the people that were in front of him, and that's something that God called him to do. And so that there were other things that were taking place in his life. And so he, he was told this, but he almost had the idea that he would have had to have stayed two more days. Because he couldn't leave right away. But that's not the word that scripture uses. It's this interesting word, so. So, he loved them so he stayed two more days. Like the way it comes across is is that it seems that Jesus loved them so he decided not to come. He loved them so, just because they wanted him, he wasn't necessarily going to show up for them. And here's what's odd. You know what? He loved them, and we know from the stories he enjoyed stopping by their house. He loved them, and he enjoyed getting to gather together with his disciples and and even the women that were there, which was unusual for a rabbi in their day, and teach them these very... uh, personal little lessons about faith to his closest circle. He loved them, and I'm sure that he enjoyed the food that Martha served. He loved them, and he enjoyed all of their help. But when it came time to help them, you'd think because all they have done. But so. So. Point number two is, so I did. I did. Like, it to me, it's an interestingly confusing thought that Jesus delayed because he loved them. And if you don't think that it's just a little bit confusing, you're probably thinking ahead. Because, you know, you, you read ahead in the story, you know the story already, you're looking at it as a whole. But listen, you won't always know the end of your life own story. And the truth is, no matter what's going on in your life, there will be times when you don't understand that aspect of your story. I don't know what it's going to look like when we get done with this, when we get through this. I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know what it is we're facing and how it might affect the rest of our lives. I don't know, and so there, that you question the other side. You, you have these pondering thoughts of what will it look like, how might it be, and, and these thoughts consume your mind because you don't know the end of your story. And you will ponder it and question it so much that sometimes you will even try to author your own ending. You don't know what's gonna happen, and it doesn't look good. And so what are you gonna do? You take control. Because you wanna make sure the end comes out like you want it to come out. You try to control the ending but it would serve us well to remember when it comes to everyday life, our work is actually in the process. God's work is outcome. And yet, we often spend our time trying to control the outcome while hoping to skip the process. And listen, we don't only do this in our own lives, we do this all the time in other people's lives. We try to control their outcome. We think we can dictate how their story is going to end or whatever they're going through is going to turn out, how it's going to turn out. I will be there to help control that ending. I will have influence on that ending. And so not only do we drive our own lives, but then we try to drive somebody else's life at the same time. And listen, the longer that you think that you can control somebody else's outcome in your life, the more frustrated you will be in the process of faith in general. And then we also do it in our personal relationship with God. We sometimes think that faith is a way to control God, it's a way to control outcomes. Don't pretend like you don't. If I pray this, then that should happen. If I pray this way, and speak in this way, and do this way, then the outcome should be whatever you think it should be according to your convenience. To what you want to believe. But anybody that's been in the process of life for very long at all, you know that at some point in the process, you're going to have a Lazarus moment. That's a moment when that thing that you do to control the formula in your life for your relationship with God and the way things are going in your life, where that formula begins to fall apart. And as good Christians, you know, sometimes we think and, and we say things like, if God really loves you, then he will if god really saw you he would if god's really strong if he's really in control he, he really has the power in his hands then this is what's going to happen in life this is going to be the result the outcome and sometimes i feel like we confuse god's love we like we take his love and we mix it in with some sort of proof of earthly evidence of his love. What do, what do I mean by that? I mean like when something's going on in life, then we take God's love and we we kind of mix it in there because he loves me, then in the mix this is going to take place. And so his love gets mixed into everything and if it turns out in that way, then it reinforces the fact that we have a loving relationship with each other, but if it doesn't, then it really confuses us. But the love of God is not always proven by the way we feel his presence. The love of God is not always proven when we want to thank him for all the great blessings that he's given us. We can stand here and give him thanks for all these good things that are going on in life, but that doesn't necessarily prove that he loves me. It's easy to praise him when the good things are going on in your life. Instead, the love of God is often proven by the way you deal with his perceived absence in your situation when you cannot feel him. But by faith, you will still praise him as we like we sang in that last song. And you praise him not because of your circumstances, but because he is God. And even though I don't see him in this moment right now, I know that I know that he is still God. And so we learn the lesson that God will not be manipulated by what we perceive is good faith. And back to the story. So Martha sends word to Jesus to to come quickly, right? Because the one that you love is sick. And look what we did Look what we've done over the years. Look how we took care of you. Look at at the process that we've developed so that you would come when something like this would arise in our lives. And yet she would still have to wait several days after sending the request for help. You know what? The only thing that returned was the message, the messenger. Number three, so I will wait in the process. Have you ever sent a message to Jesus only to have that message returned? Like, hey Jesus, you know, the one that you love, is sick, and then here comes the messenger and he's by himself again. Jesus, I'm depressed. Jesus, I, I feel all alone in my life right now. Jesus, I need to know how to make this decision. And I I can't wait until next year to make this decision. I need to know this decision right now. Jesus, I need you to help me overcome this problem in my life because these things keep arising in life. Jesus, I need you to help me straighten this out. And so you keep throwing out these messages to Jesus, like S-O-S. Your prayer seems to, to hit the ceiling and then just bounce back to you. And when it comes back to you, guess what? You're still staring At the so, the S-O, the same old situation, same old story again. Jesus waited to respond. Not because he was busy, not because he had more important things to do, not because they were doing ministry. He waited to respond because he loved them. He loved them so much that he didn't immediately respond. That's how much he loved them. So, what's their response to his so? I mean, what do you even do with that, right? How many have their read response on their text messages? Do you guys, I mean, I know we have an older church family here. You may not even know it, but, you know, when you guys open your text messages, if you didn't adjust something in your phone, uh, those who receive your, sent you the text message will know when you've read your text message. Yeah, Some of you are like, really? <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't know about you, but I turn mine off on my phone. I don't know what it is, but I don't want you to know when I read your message. I'll be honest. That's my freedom. That's my choice. You send me a text message. I'll decide when I read that message, or better yet, I'll decide when you know that I've read that message, when I respond to your message. And if I don't respond, it's because you should think that I haven't read it yet. (laughs) So that's what I want you to think. Because the truth is, we all know sometimes when a message is sent out, You get busy or you don't have time to respond or whatever it might be. Sometimes you get several throughout the day and you forget, right? But here's the deal. If you saw that I read your message when you asked me a question and I didn't respond back to your text right away, what's your response to me? Don't even lie. I have people that will call me And then when I call them back, they'll say, why didn't you answer when I called? (laughs) Because I called you back later. I know that you have your phone on you all the time. Right? Because there's this perception like we need to respond right away. And listen, if you don't respond to me right away, I start to have questions. Why aren't they responding to me? Is that question too difficult to answer? Maybe they didn't like the question. Maybe the last time I saw them, I said something wrong. Maybe our relationship isn't as good as it is. And then you have these, these thoughts that if you don't control them, will simply take you down a dark road to create... Some sort of question in you of that person's relationship with you, their love for you, their friendship with you. You begin to wonder, you know, like, are we really friends anymore? Did Is there something going on? And you start to get maybe a little bit of bitterness inside of you. You become offended because they didn't respond to you right away. That's the nature of people, when we send out a message, that we expect some sort of response to that message. Jesus' answer when they said, Why didn't you respond? is because I love you. I love you. Since He loves me, right? We, we try to mix those things. But if you're looking to the circumstances of your life, like here's what's going on for the proof of God's love, then you're looking for love in all the wrong places. And don't even get me started. For those who know, this just stirs up something warm and fuzzy inside of me. I'll break out in song. Looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) Jesus told Martha that the sickness would not end in death, but for the glory of God. That's the message. That's what he said, right? But if you're the person that's sitting next to Lazarus, like, how do you respond to that? Wait a minute but this is going to be for the glory of God. But you're not sitting here. You're not even here right now. You didn't even come back with them. Like, this is going to be for the glory of God that the person that I love seems to be dying right now? You say that, but they're not even getting better. Their temperature isn't going down. Their cough isn't going away. Like, things don't seem to be coming around, even to the idea that it won't be unto death. Yay, God. God that this is for your glory, but it sure it certainly doesn't feel, it sure certainly doesn't feel like it's for anybody's glory right now. And, and again, I want to challenge you not to think that for a, a second you would have been excited about that statement, right? If you're going through something or the person you love the most is going through somebody and somebody walks up to you and says, Oh, but this is for God's glory. What's your response going to be? I just want to get us out of our hypocritical stage this morning, like that mindset. Like the truth is when you're going through something and somebody says, oh, but this will be for God's glory. This, this is going to all things work together for the good. Like this is going to come out like that is not what you want to hear in the middle of your story. I mean, you'd be like, I want to see God's glory right now, right? We've been there. God's word says one thing, and you're experiencing something different. And it can be confusing at times. So confusing that even the disciples, who were Jesus' closest uh, friends, were often confused about his motives, his responses. It didn't make sense culturally, society, the the way society worked. His responses often didn't make sense. And even look at their response to the cross. Like they didn't get it. He told them what was going to take place. They still didn't get it. He is the God of the outcome. And we are not. Now the reason that we Need wait times in our processes is because our job is to sow. This time I don't mean sow. I mean sow. Sow seed. Sow good seed, right? While our hopes and our prayers are projected onto the one that is in control of the outcome. Matthew 9:38, let me give you these two scriptures real quick. Therefore, pray, Jesus tells his disciples, that the Lord of the harvest, for him to send out labors into his harvest. Pray that there would be labor. Who's in control of the harvest? Jesus is in control of the heart, the end. Do not be be deceived. Galatians 6, 7 through 8. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. I don't know about you, but quite often when you read through these verses, whatever man sows, he will also reap. Is We use that as Christians oftentimes in a negative way. Like, oh, you're going to reap what you sow? You're going to reap what you sow, right? What comes around and karma... We don't believe in. But why do we look at a verse negatively? Like it even says in the follow-up explanation of what, what is being said right there, that if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap of the Spirit. It's not a negative verse. It's a neutral verse. Because what we don't realize is we're sowing seed all the time. This, we're, we're sowing seed whether we want to sow seed or not. It's just a choice of what kind of seed you be sowing. You can do nothing, and you're still sowing seed. It's just a choice. Are you sowing to the flesh, or are you sowing to the spirit? Here, I want you to understand that the harvest represents the outcome, and God will always determine that outcome. Pray to him that he will send laborers to the harvest, right? But we, we decide on what's going to be sown and what we're going to withhold. Right? You can say, I'm not going to sow that seed. I'm not going to sow this bad seed. I'm going to sow good seed. Or you know what? I know what's right to do right here, but I just feel like I'm trampled on and my feelings are hurt. And I'm not going to sow seeds of forgiveness and love and kindness and joy and comfort into that person right now because they don't deserve it. You're in control of the seed. So what are we sowing in the Lazarus moment? What are we sowing in the wait? What are we sowing in the process? God's in control of the outcome. However, we're in control of the seed. And here's what I want you to hear hear me say. In point number two, it's not about what you did. They did a lot. And they thought because they did that for Jesus, that Jesus would come because they've developed that relationship and that caused Jesus to love them. And it was all about that. Point number three, this isn't about works. We just dispelled that in the previous point. What we need to understand when it comes to to sowing seed, once again, is you're always sowing seed, but it's learning how to sow the right seed, the good seed. Like, if I'm going to be in this, then I might as well sow the good seed. I might as well sow things that will help develop the love of God, that that we have my love with God and his love for me. I might as well sow seed that's going to help develop that trust, love and trust, love and trust, not based upon what I see or my circumstances, but based upon who he is in life. And while I'm in the midst of this process and I'm sowing this seed with my eyes on the one who loves me, right? Right? I'm going to develop and grow stronger in whatever the outcome is on the other side. But if I'm not sowing the good seed in the process, whatever the outcome is on the other side might destroy my faith. And I don't know if we think about that sometimes. I sit back at times, and of course you guys hear me, I think of the the things and I ponder and that's kind of who I am. And sometimes I picture bad things in my life and how I would respond to those bad things. You know, they might think, that's kind of morbid, why would you do those types of things? I want to tell you that I think of those things because if it ever does happen, I pray that I can stand before my church family and show you what faith looks like if any one of those things takes place in life. I think about what I would do and how I would respond now so that if I'm ever going through it, that I will hopefully do those things of sowing good seed in the process that I don't understand on the other side because I don't ever want to look back when I'm 60, 65, 70, a few years from now, who knows, and be fallen away from my faith and have people say, and you used to be a pastor? because I didn't know to sow good seed when life was hell, because we all go through it. But what are you sowing while you're in it, so that when you come out on the other side, no matter what the results are, not only will you still have your faith, but you will be stronger in your faith because of it. I don't want to be hanging by a thread. I don't want to end life wondering, questioning, Is Jesus real? Should all of this happen a different way? I don't want to have those regrets. The challenge is, what are you sowing? God values the waiting process because of that, and so should we. But listen, not even his disciples fully understood the value of the waiting process. Point number four is to believe, verse seven. Then after he said to the disciples, then after everything we just talked about, verse six, he says, let us go to Judea again. Now, mind you, Judea is where Bethany is, outside of Jerusalem. They left there, they fled there, Because they were wanting to stone Jesus. Do you guys remember that in the previous chapter? Several times. So they left. Now he's saying, let's go back. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And you're going there again? Remember this, the disciples did not know that Jesus was invincible. We know that because we have the benefit of knowing the story that Jesus lays down his own life when it's time for him to lay down his own life based upon his purpose, based upon the mission that his father had given him, based upon that supreme moment in time that would define all of humanity. But up until that point, Jesus wasn't going to die no matter what he did. They didn't understand that, that nobody could really touch him and so when he says, let's go back, they're confused. Like, not only did they tell you a while ago when you healed that lame man and told him to pick up his mat, you was going to die. But ever since then, you've only been poking at that bear for a while. And the crowds get stirred up. And like, we, this almost happened last time. Like, you want to go back there right now? Like, it's, it's still fresh in most of their minds. Like, you just said so like we weren't going to go I thought that was the direction you were taking us that felt a, a little safer maybe didn't feel so good that we don't know what's going on with Lazarus but feels a little bit safer over here but now you're saying we're going the exact opposite direction now you're taking us in a place that that they might actually want to stone you again and who knows what's going to happen to us like like we don't even understand Jesus answered and he said are there not 12 hours in the day? If anybody walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if somebody walks in the night and he stumbles, it's because the light is not in him. Like, that's an answer. We are going. We aren't going. We are going to die. We aren't going to die. Like, what kind of response is that? Sure, it sounds nice, right? But I don't know. I'm, I think the disciples aren't quite sure what to do. So, are we going to Judea or not? Because you said we weren't, and now all of a sudden, you're saying we are. Are we going to help Lazarus or not? Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get well right? Like, that makes sense. He was sick. He needs to get his rest. He's going to get better. However, Jesus spoke of his death. They thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus was speaking of death. The disciples thought that he was speaking about natural sleep. Jesus was speaking symbolically with a little more depth while the disciples were thinking literally. How many times do we go through life just seeing the things that are on the surface? Because that's all that we can see. And when Jesus speaks, we don't even care to go any deeper than what we see. It's okay as long as that's what we see, or it's not okay if that's what we see. But we don't care to go beyond what we we see. We just stay on the surface because it seems simpler on the surface. And then even when Jesus makes it plain, it's still a little difficult to comprehend. We delayed going, now it appears that we, we are going so that you can wake him up, but he's dead. Like They thought that he's dead. Like you said you were going to wake him up. We're going to wake him up. But now that you're telling us he's dead, like try to figure that out. Even when you think that it should be clear, it's still not. Like, okay. And here's what I want us to understand this morning, that we should rest in the moments or in the moment of unknowns. What he's trying to get us to do is rest in the moment of unknowns, knowing that we don't need to know everything because everything is not for us to know, but to believe, but to believe. Verse 15, Jesus said, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe nevertheless, let us go to him. Like, if you're living in this story, then everything about Jesus' decision, all of his decision making leading right up to this very point, even now, if you're one of the disciples, you might think that this is questionable, maybe even worrisome, selfish to some people. Like, why would he choose to do this? It doesn't even make sense. It seems a little bit selfish. But again, We shouldn't always be looking for proof of God's love in what he does. Because sometimes the proof is in what he doesn't do. And right now in this confusing Lazarus moment, compounded by Jesus just saying he's glad about it all. Jesus tells his disciples, and he's telling you, all of this is for you. It's for you, because even in the questions of life, even in the confusion, the, the doubt, the wonder, and the hurts, I need something from you. How often do you guys talk about or discuss love languages? I wouldn't say it's something that we always do, but I will often think, if you've read the book, The Five Love Languages, what people's love language is. I've taken a lot of personality tests and different things and see what people's personalities are. The, The one that stuck with me the most is the five love languages. Like, my wife's love language is quality time. And it's important for me to know that because if I want her to feel loved, that's the way she receives love. Quality time. Now... Not coincidentally, it's probably one of the most challenging aspects of our life because we don't always have a lot of time. And then there's always the question of man thinking, woman thinking, and what is quality? Can somebody please define what quality is? Because your quality may not be my quality, and we've got to figure out what this quality thing is here, right? And so, so you, you know that there's, there's this language of love. Mine's simple. Acts of service. Baby, eggs, bacon, and hash browns, and I feel loved for the rest of the day. Like, you make me feel like a king. Throw a little wheat toast with some butter on it, a glass of orange juice, and a cup of coffee, and it's a whole new world. Let's go explore. We all have love languages. You know that God has a love language too? God's love language is trust. We often equate love with comfort. Like I just described, I love the comfort of a full belly. With comfort, what makes us feel comfortable. We, we think of love as what is comfortable to us. But God's love language is just the opposite. It's trust. And how do you gain trust but to have went something, through something, that would challenge whether or not you can trust? More than he likes to see you read, more than he likes to hear you sing, More than he likes the fancy Christian apparel that you might put on, the t-shirts that you buy, or your cross necklace, or the fish on the trunk of your car. More than the Christian scriptures or memes that you post on Facebook. God loves it when you trust him. So much that he purposely will do things or don't do things that make sense to you. So, You believe, so you will believe more, so your trust in him will grow. That's so faith. See, there may be a day coming soon when all that you've lived for is nailed to a cross, and God wants you to be able to still go with him. The final verse, after he tells his disciples this, Thomas, now listen, don't think of the name that goes with Thomas quite yet. Thomas, the disciple who's called the twin, to his fellow disciples, who are probably all asking questions, thinking this is crazy, says, let us go that we may die with him. I don't care how you want to read that verse because unfortunately we don't have the ability to hear how he said it. I look at point number five as this, so let's go. Like, it doesn't matter if he said it with a little bit of doubt, like you may tend to think because you know of him as Thomas the Doubter, or he said it with a little bit of faith, not knowing what the other side would bring. If Jesus said, let's go, and it doesn't quite make sense, what are you going to do? He's going to take you somewhere, but do you want to go the other direction, away from him? So what is your answer going to be? So, let's go. Like, Even if it means that we die with Jesus, because that's what it looks like could happen if we follow after him. It doesn't even matter what the end results would be. Let's go. That's is what so-faith is. Despite the questions and the mass confusion, maybe even the doubts that you have in life, Thomas has the faith to follow Jesus regardless. So-faith. We all have a Lazarus, whether it's a dream that didn't quite turn out like we had hoped it would, a relationship, that died, failed expectations of someone that you trusted. We all have a Lazarus. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. You sent the message and it came back empty. You don't know. But know this foundational truth. Jesus loves you he loves you for you an individual person right where you are he loves you and so he waits that you trust in him will grow enough that regardless of what you don't know your answer will be so regardless of what it looks like, even if he's leading me through the valley of the shadow of death, my answer is, so, let's go. That is so faith. The challenge of our lives. And I pray that we can rise up in so faith that no matter what is on the horizon in our world, in our nation, in our personal lives, that we're like, I'm going to sow good seed. Not because of the outcome of me sowing that good seed. He's in control of that. But because he's good. And you know what? My eyes are on him. And if he says let's go in the opposite direction of what I think that we should have been going right now, so let's go. So let's go. So let's go.